This is Mike Chrisman. I'm here with uh, Nick DeMuro. Welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what uh, you want to hear coming to you live from uh, the Holly Library. Uh, we'd like to start off first off by thanking folks who have subscribed. We're up over 60 subscribers now. Um, many, many uh, folks have listened in. Uh, and we want to thank uh, staff and administration. We want to thank students, uh, both current and uh, past students, who have not only listened in, but have uh, uh, submitted questions as well and keep those questions coming. That's what keeps this podcast uh, going and hopefully hearing what you want to hear. So we have uh, a little bit shorter podcast today, but on a, a special event. So yesterday, November 30th, was would have been if, if he was able to live that long. Um, I don't know if he would have wanted to. Winston Churchill's 143rd birthday. And I'd like to point out that he's a Scorpio, which I also am, and Theodore Roosevelt too. So my favorite presence. There's a lot of good company there. Um, so we're going to call this, I guess, our hashtag Cheers to Winston episode. Right now, people on Facebook and Twitter are sharing their favorite um, Winston Churchill quotes. And there's some good ones. I think we'll end with some of those at the, at the end, just read them off. Um, some funny ones and maybe some serious ones because there's some inspiring ones there too. Uh, Darkest Hour comes out, I want to say, this December, which is the film about Churchill during uh, the, his, his first prime ministership. Uh, during World War II, Gary Oldman is playing Churchill. How do you think he's going to be in that role? From what I've seen in the uh, the previews, I mean, he does a, a darn good job. He pulls it off really, really well. Well, he, isn't he is he a method actor? I Oldman? believe so. And yeah, so he's like like that Daniel Day Lewis type, where it's like, you call me this, you don't address me as my real name. You live the part, which is like so hard on the family. I can't imagine. Like Daniel Day Lewis, like talks <laughs> about like I think my wife because I'm like I go away for a year basically as a different person. Um, so Churchill, we want to do a show on him today, and and I'll be completely honest, I'm an Anglophile, so I'm a big Churchill fan. <laughs> I'll admit my bias. I don't know a whole lot about him, although I'm currently yeah. in the middle of reading a book. Yeah, uh, why don't you tell us about the book real quick? It's a it's a book called Franklin and Winston by John Meacham. Uh, it's a book outlining their um, their willingness to work together during World War II, both uh, leading up to American involvement and during, and then afterwards. Uh, also really profiles their friendship, which is interesting because they both start off really not trusting each other, but it, their lives are uh, run incredible parallels. And so I'm right now, uh, I'm just I just got to the part I finished the part last night where U.S. enters World War II, mm-hmm. um, and up to that point it's been uh, Winston manipulating to a certain degree the Americans and uh, and Franklin uh, Roosevelt into the Lend-Lease Act. Right. Um, bases for destroyers, uh, naval bases for destroyers, and things like that. So it's been an interesting read so far. If you get a chance, uh, check it out. It's more an academic read, more than a, just sit back and uh, read it in an evening. So, um, but very interesting, very enlightening. Um, you see the parallels between those guys. Uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about you know, you know um, Churchill has a background in the Navy. Uh, so does uh, so does Franklin Roosevelt. Um, both of them have uh, very uh, similar family backgrounds. Uh, the way that they grew up. Uh, they both become great orators. Uh, both lead their countries through uh, incredibly difficult times. So not not surprising. It's a it's a it's an easy book to make a, a thesis statement and uh, and back it up. So so Churchill was a blue blood uh, blue blood like Roosevelt uh, when he was born. Um, you know he he started out as you know pretty well off, but did not have that great of a relationship with his parents. Um, and that you know Churchill was often described later as kind of a cold father too and husband at times. Um, most I find. Do you find the most great, quote unquote, great men in history are like that? 
Well, they tend to be. They're they're yeah. so focused on the things that that are important to them. Right. Many times, family gets pushed uh, to the background mm-hmm. or to the side, um, and that's sometimes a really kind of a tragic thing because the you know these folks that we look up to and, and, and admire mm-hmm. are actually flawed as far as becoming a good family person. Um, you know, one of the things I've always thought was so interesting about Churchill, and especially his background, when you know, in, in his childhood, he had an incredible stuttering problem. Yeah. And later becomes, yeah. you know, one of the great speech writers, and not just writers, but to be able to perform a speech, and that's probably the best way to describe it, because it's one thing to read the words on the paper, it's something else to put heart and meaning behind it, mm-hmm. to inspire people to do things. Yeah. So. Kind of like... Theodore Roosevelt was the same way. He he was all sickly when he was young, and he projects this man, this Theodore Roosevelt that is not Franklin, projects that the image of masculinity later on. And there's a lot of parallels between those two guys as far as for their own country. Well, Churchill was, a, you know, it, we, we want to give you a little bit of background. The goal of this show is not to provide narrative history to like completely tell you a story. Although in the future we might do a podcast on our favorite historical figures, favorite historical stories, things of that nature. Churchill was a two-time prime minister for Great Britain. And when he was young, he served in the army, uh, various government positions from the Admiralty uh, the Admiralty and the Navy um, to, you know, exchequer, all, all types of things in the British government. And he eventually makes his way to the top and serves as that, as that two-time prime minister. And I think one of the most fascinating things about him is his ability to move from failure to failure. And he had a quote about this, too, that I hope I can find it later. Um, but his ability to move from failure to failure was just so impressive. And I think that's a cool thing for students to learn. I'll often talk about that, too. And his mother, most people don't know this, his mother was American, and his father was uh, was British. And I, I think that probably comes up in the book a little bit, yeah, it does. his ties to the U.S. And he he's one of these first, um, they called them transatlantic folks, like Theodore Roosevelt, who believed in locking arms w- with, with Britain. Um, and you mentioned this earlier, Mike. It was key that he secures that Lend-Lease Act in World War II. Well, it's, it's important to Britain's survival. Yes. What's interesting, though, is at that point, Britain had a pretty good idea that Operation Sea Lion, that, yeah. that potential invasion of Britain, yeah. was most likely not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it was still important for Britain to get that uh, backing financially and, military, and uh, material-wise. I mean, the moat helps around, oh, around your country. No, it it's absolutely does. Um, but they can't. Britain can't keep up production. No, you know, um, they're still limping out. They're limping out of the First World War. Still, oh, absolutely. All of Europe is. It's a miracle that Britain and France are even somewhat able to stand, because it's it's like that whole theme of the the, the victor will suffer with the vanquished after World War One. Right. You know, and and the United States and Japan really are the only ones that come out unscathed. They're the only winners. Um, the Britain, France left in that permanent hangover from the First World War, and Britain knows it. And I think Churchill knew it. Right off the bat, just that will to fight is, right. is totally crushed. Well, I think what makes Churchill too an interesting prime minister is he, he's not a coalition prime minister. No, he is not a guy who's going to during peacetime, yeah, get two parties to work together or two or more parties to work together. Right. He is the guy you want in charge in a crisis yep. like World War Two. And then what happens to him after World War Two? Not yep. He's gone, mm-hmm. and then they bring him back for the Cold War. And then he kind of loses favor <laughs> with the British public. So it's it's interesting in the fact that he's the right man for the right time. Yeah. But the right time is not always for that man. Yeah. You know, it's a good way. To uh, put it's, it. a, it's an interesting way to think about. It. Well, I mean, he got so he. We're kind of in the World War Two point here. I want to go back to the World War One Gallipoli, the oh, first yeah. downfall's career. I want to get back to that. Um, he did call out Stalin, the Soviets, right away. He was so critical of Roosevelt at Yalta for sell, quote unquote like selling Europe, you know. 
um, away to Stalin and trusting in Stalin, whereas Churchill saw Stalin for what he was. And Churchill's dealings with Stalin are super interesting too, because those two will meet and have some some colored meetings as well. Um, I couldn't imagine just sitting with those big three at Yalta, listening to the. Would you love to be a fly on the wall for those? I would have been, although it's interesting if you do a lot of reading about Yalta. Franklin Roosevelt at that yes. point is so sick; mm-hmm. he really doesn't isn't able to be there for a lot of the meetings. So it's really a contest of wills between Stalin and Churchill, who mm-hmm. I view as as I mean, being a fly on the wall. I mean, those are two immovable objects, mm-hmm. and how and with such different viewpoints on how the world should be, not surprising then that they come up with uh, what they do, which is essentially. Dividing Europe, you know, and setting up the Cold War anyway, mm-hmm. um, to a certain degree, I, I buy into that. They, the Allies sold out, mm-hmm. um, and it, it leads to the Cold War, which leads to other, you know, problems around the world. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's part of what what leads to the downfall of, of Churchill, um, at least after World War II. That's mm-hmm. how people view it. You know? Some criticisms have been like, you know, his his colonial attitude, his attitudes on race. Um, you know, and there's that side of, of Churchill that you can certainly dive much deeper into. I'll be honest, it's one side that I'm not well-versed on. I know it's there, that he had some very negative attitudes on race and certain things like that, which is to be expected of somebody of, of his stature, his blue-blood nature. Um, but it, for his own people, uh, he was progressive on some things. In the 1950s, during that second term as prime minister, those, those mining reforms and those housing reforms, something you don't expect of a conservative in Britain, but he did switch parties a couple times, especially in that like late twenties and thirties interwar period. He was a lost guy. Well, he doesn't he doesn't view the parties as a as a means to an end. He's, right. He's just trying to make sure that he's working with folks who can get done what he wants yes. to do. Which is why yes. I said earlier, I don't, I don't see him as a coalition prime minister right. because you can't trust him to stay to stay with you. Yeah. Uh, he wants you to stay with him. Right. It, you know, it, it's it's very much about what he wants and, and what he's uh, looking for. Um. So back to kind of his early life, this is some of the stuff that most people don't realize about Churchill. So we kind of covered the big things. Uh, we got about 10 minutes or so left here. Uh, he served in the Hussars Cavalry in 1895 in the Indian Northwest and the Sudan campaigns. And he's part of the last great British romantic cavalry charge, the Battle of Omdurman. And he talked about, um, he talked about killing people and, and that he had to do that. And one of the interesting things, that in, too, is... You know, you have people who are, are, are war hawks in government in the United States today. Uh, people that come to mind like George W. Bush who were criticized as being chicken hawks because they didn't actually fight. Um, usually you see this in the neoconservatives in the United States. Churchill's one of those guys, again, I, I draw the parallel because it's what I know, like a Theodore Roosevelt who he talks war, he talks a tough game, but these are guys who backed it up. These are guys who served. They put on the uniform. They went and, and did things. And Churchill... Um, we're going to get to now his, his failure at Gallipoli. Um, during the First World War, he was looking for that quote-unquote, as he would say in the Second World, the soft underbelly. Right. Um, the, the, the area he could, they could hit the, the Central Powers, and they went after the Turks in the Dardanelles near Constantinople, if you're familiar. And the campaign ends up being a complete failure. That's playing mildly. Yes, and Churchill's idea was to use the obsolete naval ships that when the 1906 Dreadnought class comes out, these ships are obsolete, and in Churchill's minds, they're assets to be, you know, just like, let's use them. If the ships sink, it's not a big deal. Never mind the guys on the ships. That's that Churchill perspective anyways. Well, I think he views the troops much the same way. Yes, he does. Using Anzac, yes. Australian and New Zealand troops yes. uh, in, co- in coalition with the British. But uh, I think I think he views the, the Anzac troops as an, an untapped resource. Mm-hmm. 
and and therefore uh, and goes that direction. It's he's an interesting guy because not only when you look at his um, his tactics in World War One for going for that soft underbelly, he's a real proponent in World War Two yep. of doing the same thing, mm-hmm. except he wants to drive into the Balkans. Right. He wants to go into Greece and Bulgaria and invade not Italy, mm-hmm. but invade farther to the east. And he's overruled uh, on that by mostly the American army. He's not mm-hmm. willing to to take those risks. But his his strategy sometimes I, f- I find questionable. Yeah. Like the, the places he's going, I think he's doing for ulterior motives yeah. rather than anything. Well, I think the Gallipoli campaign on paper does not sound like a bad idea. Force the Straits, mm-hmm. this naval fleet, if you lose it, it's not that big of a deal. There was a lot of the risks. They didn't want to lose that trump card they had over the Germans, which was the Navy. If they lost the, the, their Navy superiority, they, they lose the war. It's the one Trump they have over Germany, because Germany certainly has probably the best land army um, yeah. at the time. Uh, size, training, combined, leadership, everything. So the plan is not a bad plan on paper in theory, but as we know, in theory, everything works out just fine. But Gallipoli ends up being a disaster, and the Turks, who can't seem to do anything right, defeat the, the British coalition with some French forces too, and absolutely, it just gives the Turks more morale, if anything. I think it goes back to his background of mis- misunderstanding and um, underestimating the Turks. Not just Turks, but any group that is not part of the um, the British Empire itself. Yeah. You know, yeah. In my mind, he he underestimates people constantly. Yeah. Um, you know, as to what they can accomplish. Well, not Hitler. He didn't do it Hitler. <laughs> Hitler, but he's not in power when right. Hitler it's is e- making that rise. It's right? easy for him to say. Right. Absolutely, and it's really easy for him to say when he's not the the prime minister. In charge of everything, yeah. um, and it becomes way more clear after the invasion of Poland. But yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So after Gallipoli, he ends up going to serve with the uh, the Royal Scots Fusiliers as lieutenant colonel. Um, spends a hundred days in the front at the trenches in a relatively quiet sector. But I mean, he doesn't. But relatively quiet sector of the Western Front is still not the place you want to be. His wife was so upset with him that he went too. And if, if you think about it, he, he's newly married. He got married in 1908, I believe. He has children. I would be upset with him too. And there's that example of the father and the husband that he's more concerned with revitalizing his image and who he is than than being home. And he's older at this point, right? You know, he he. It's like the Roosevelt. He's trying to the, prove himself as yeah. still a young guy. He, and yeah, he, yeah. I think he want, but I think he also wants to be like, if I'm going to advocate for these policies, I have to have the record to do it, regardless of my safety. Um, and he goes three times in no man's land, different on different occasions for different missions, and by all accounts, was a fairly decent soldier. Um, in the 1930s, he has that period where he's sort of labeled an, an extremist, and um, he actually, you know, shifts political parties quite a bit. Uh, one, oh, I skipped over this one. One more thing: during the Boer Wars, I never knew this. He gets captured during the Boer Wars. He's serving as a reporter, gets captured, and makes like this daring escape. And in perfect Churchillian fashion, like has the reporters waiting for him when he gets off the boat, and like. He comes back as, you know, that publicity thing. And, and, and he did make quite the daring escape and managed to find, like, the one British house in the area he was in. They knocked on the door. And then and you wonder, so but you wonder then, too, about the you know, the story and how much of it is oh, of embellished. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was the guy to do it. Um, but a fascinating character. And, uh, I mean, the drinking. Some people, there's been books written about him. <laughs> The book, is. the book I'm reading. There's actually a there's discussion about. Um, so the U.S. enters World War uh, World War Two. Yeah. Churchill comes over almost immediately after mm-hmm. the attack on Pearl Harbor to kind of work out uh, logistics with uh, the president, and the uh, the White House staff is stunned 
at the amount of scotch that he puts down <laughs> in a day, much less the entire trip that he's there. And then that not only that, but the number of cigars. They, I mean, they yes. were absolutely just yes. flabbergasted. I, probably by modern standards, he would have been a, uh, an alcoholic. Right. You know, um, but he somehow made it work. I mean, it was all part of his image. You know, there's a great set. There's, there's actually a whiskey glass that I, I think you can buy. And I, I think it says, like, um, something. He said something effective, like, you know, it's better to be full of whiskey than bullets. But something, like, I can't remember how it goes. But it, it, it is funny. So that brings us, I think, to the, to the quote portion of our show. Oh, one more thing. BBC, 2002, Greatest Britain of All Time, Winston Churchill. Not surprising. I, I kind of was shocked they picked him. I really was. I thought why, they'd go for a more is. progressive figure. Well, I don't know. He, he, I mean, he not only leads the British, he inspires the British. Well, I, as I, a, as I agree. I think he's the greatest Breton. I agree. I really yeah. do. I mean, as a historian, if you read a little bit about him, I mean, he is, he is, a, he is well-read. Yes. Not only in, uh, in fiction, uh, in politics, but he's a very good historian as well. And he's like to, to fancy himself yes. as a... Um, as a Nelson from Trafalgar. Yes, he did. Uh, he, he really kind of uh, lays out the idea, during, especially the beginning of World War II, when Britain's really struggling, that uh, the people of Britain are to do their duty yeah. to the cause, yeah. just like Nelson challenged his men at Trafalgar to do your duty yeah. for the empire. Yeah. Right? Um, and I, I think he sees himself in that role completely and sells himself that way yes. the whole way through. So. Um, and that's one. That's actually the last thing I wanted to mention before we get to our, kind of our, our quote list here and just read some of the good ones. Um, is that Churchill being an amateur historian? He's not professional. He doesn't have his PhD by any means, which is, makes you a professional historian on paper. Um, you know, and he realizes that when he writes. Like I think when he writes his histories, if you read them, it's so much. He obviously is like I like to write about things I like to write about. You know, and 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 that, and he sort of picks and chooses what he writes about too. And he's also consciously of being a, like a, not a professional historian. Like he often would talk about the fact that he feels like out of his league. But he really is a good historian. Like I love, I love to read his stuff because it's entertaining. He embellishes, you know. It's it's, it's stories and then like crazy language and it's he'd be the guy that you'd want to have sitting right next to us right now on the show talking about history, right? The way he talks about it, absolutely. So to kind of end with some great quotes, um, this is this is actually one of my favorites because it, it illustrates him as a person. This is from World War One, and he wrote this in a letter privately, and he said, I think a curse should rest on me because I love this war. I know it's smashing and shattering the lives of thousands every moment, and yet I can't help it. I enjoy every second of it. Imagine that gets out in the newspapers. But, yeah, I mean, that would be the end of them. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, I know it physically... Um, took its toll on him as well. I mean, yes. he, he spent sleepless nights pacing and, and trying to figure out strategy and working with, uh, you know, the coalition and the allies. But um, it, it's one, you know, it also provides him a great opportunity to be a great leader. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what he's getting at is that, and again, it goes back to that putting the what's good for you personally ahead of what's good for, you know, the group or, or other folks or even your family. So just kind of end the show, we have some just some good quotes from him. Um, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. So it's always a great I, I've, quote I've read for the that, classroom, isn't it? I've read that one a few times. You have enemies, good. That means you've stood for something in your so, something sometime in your life. Um, I like this one. Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as nothing ever happened. Um, if you're going through hell, keep going. I like this one a lot. My tastes are simple. I am easily satisfied with the best. 
<laughs> I like right, that yeah. one. Um, History will be kind for me. I intend to write it. Uh, I love this one. Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And that's the one you had, you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, that that one. I think that best describes it's him. him. Absolutely, because his life is, is up and down. Um, I like this one too. Tack is the ability to tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip. <laughs> that's something he would do. Um, here's a great one. I, this is this is the classic, and and I think. We have to end with the show on this one. <laughs> it's, it's great. A lady came up to me one day and said, Sir, you are drunk. To which I replied, I am drunk today, madam, and tomorrow I shall be sober, but you will still be ugly. <laughs> That's, that, that, is, home, man. that is Churchill um, to a T. You could definitely not say that today. Um, okay, but uh, that's going to do it for us today. We want to keep it short for the show. Um, make sure you get your questions to us at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com or even tweet us at hollyhistory. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can click on it right at the bottom corner. And we hope to have our next episode out to you soon, but we're going to need some more questions. So get those in. And uh, this is Nick DeMuro and Mike Christman signing off from the Holly Central Schools Library. Thank you for joining us for Holly History. <laughs>